My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to make theological principles and biblical stories and narratives and really all the genres of scripture. And we want to help you help immerse you and yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week and ways you can support our ministry is first, we want you to actually listen to this, uh, follow our Instagram page, like our Facebook page, and you can listen to this broadcast in whatever social media channel you are on. Uh, you can make comments underneath. Uh, right now we are Facebook Live. Um, I know that this will be rebroadcast at 10 a.m. on Sunday and also will be played on YouTube if you have that social media channel. We want you to financially support us any way you can. Our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 for this broadcast. And again, this is going to be replayed on Sunday morning. And every Thursday night, we come together for this and give a live and better understanding of the material that we are covering. So call this a deeper dive. That's what we've been calling it. So if you've been following us online, you remember that we are in the book of Exodus. And today we are discussing Exodus 6-2 through 7-13. And I am joined today again with Sharia Bodner and Jake Flug. These are two of my leaders. Uh, they have an expert knowledge in the language of Hebrew and Greek, and also just in general scripture and how to apply it. They're both great theologians that I work with. So good evening, Sharia and Jake. Good evening, Kevin. Hey. Hello. <laughs> All right. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I think that tonight <laughs> is going to be a great night. And uh, in our prelim work, we kind of bounced around. So we'll see how this all comes together. I hope it comes together well. Uh, and we're just going to off the cuff, just kind of do this. That's what these nights have been, have been, a, have been a, about. So last week, we discussed some pretty weird stuff. I mean, the Bible got weird. And we sifted through and and kind of went through everything. Uh, and I hope that people enjoyed it or at least got something out of it. And tonight is going to be a little more normal with some smatterings of abnormal again. But last week we talked about the mir miraculous signs that Moses performed before he went to the uh, went to Pharaoh. He did these in front of the elders and the elders affirmed his position and his authority to go before, before Pharaoh. And there was great disappointment because Pharaoh didn't do what Pharaoh was supposed to do. Pharaoh did what Pharaoh does. He dug his heels in and went, no, you know, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to let your people go. They mean money. They are property and they're doing stuff for me and I need them to do stuff for me. I need them to be my property and I want to make money off of them. So that was a challenge for uh, Moses. There was a lot of blame in the last part of that scripture, but then we end up in 6-1 with the affirmation that God is going to do this, that God in the Exodus and, you know, preview of coming attractions, you saw the movie, um, uh, Charleston Heston, Charlton, Charles. Charlton Heston, Heston. did a great job. I just had to say it really slowly. Um, he did a great job, but you know, Prince of Egypt did better. So Prince of Egypt, you saw Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let me people go. And, and you know what happens in the end. So we, we end up in this chapter. We're going to read the whole thing in, in, in its entirety. We're going to listen to it. Shrey is going to do that for us this week. And then we'll get into uh, the meat of what we're talking about. So Shreya, go ahead and take it away. All right. Exodus 6, 2 through seven thirteen. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I didn't reveal myself to them by my name, the Lord. I also set up my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as immigrants. I've also heard the cry of grief of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians have turned into slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. 
I'll bring you out from Egyptian forced labor. I'll rescue you from your slavery to them. I'll set you free with great power and with momentous events of justice. I'll take you as my people and I'll be your God. You will know that I, the Lord, am your God who has freed you from Egyptian forced labor. I'll bring you into the land that I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as your possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they didn't listen to Moses because of their complete exhaustion and their hard labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, Egypt's king, to let the Israelites out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, the Israelites haven't even listened to me. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen to me, especially since I'm not a very good speaker? Nevertheless, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, Egypt's king, giving them orders to let the Israelites go from the land of Egypt. These were the leaders of their households, the descendants of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These were Reuben's clans, the Simeonites, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, a Canaanite woman's son. These were Simeon's clans. These were the Levites' names by their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The Gershonites, Libni, and Shimei, and their clans. The Kohathites, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The Merarites, Mali, and Mushi. These were the Levite clans by their generations. Amram married Jochebed, his father's sister. She gave birth to Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The Isharites, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The Uzielites, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sitri. Aaron married Elisheba, Aminadab's daughter, and Nashan's sister. She gave birth to Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The Korahites, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaf, these were the Korite clans. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of Putiel's daughters. She gave birth to Phineas. These were the leaders of Levite households by their clans. It was this same Aaron and Moses whom the Lord commanded, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt in military formation. It was also the same Moses and Aaron who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. At the, same, at the time the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, Egypt's king, everything that I've said to you. But Moses replied to the Lord, look, I'm not a very good speaker. How is Pharaoh ever going to listen to me? The Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You will say everything that I command you and your brother Aaron will tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites out of his land. But I'll make Pharaoh stubborn and I'll perform many of my signs and amazing acts in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh refuses to listen to you, then I'll act against Egypt and bring my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt in military formation by momentous events of justice. The Egyptians will come to know that I am the Lord when I act against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, do one of your amazing acts, then say to Aaron, take your shepherd's rod and throw it down in front of Pharaoh, and it will turn into a cobra. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his shepherd's rod in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it turned into a cobra. Then Pharaoh called together his wise men and wizards, and Egypt's religious experts did the same thing by using their secret knowledge. Each one threw down his rod, and they turned into cobras. But then Aaron's rod swallowed up each of their rods. However, Pharaoh remained stubborn. He wouldn't listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Well, first, so thankful good job. I didn't have to read that one. 
Yeah. That's, that's snuck up on me. Ooh. Good, good job for, with that, uh, genealogy, <laughs> Sharia. Thank you. Hebrew scholar that can, uh, at least sound out, <laughs> sound out some of those names. Awesome. Well, when I, when I read this, uh, I went, wait a minute, where are we at in the story? Because we already went over that and it's a complete repeat of three and four. And so it's a summarized repeat, but it's definitely a repeat. And so we're going to cover why, but the, the blaring thing out of this scripture that I can see is what is the point of genealogy? The Bible's full of genealogy. And if you pay for the app ancestry.com, you're, uh, you're definitely all into genealogies. And some people are, people just get into it and they build their trees and their family trees. And some people have no idea and might not care, you know, where they're from. They just, it doesn't, you know, they're not connected. They don't want to connect to that or they, it's not an interest to them. So, but it's obviously important to ancient people, genealogies, uh, cause you see it in the old Testament, you see massive genealogies in certain books of the Bible. And then you see it right at the beginning of the book of Matthew. It's like, great, here we are again in the new Testament genealogies. So we're going to talk about the point of genealogies because genealogies are not necessarily important to us when we read them. You know, we're just trying to pronounce names and figure out who came from what. And it, it sometimes feels to us without purpose. Yet they were very important to the Israelite people, obviously, because they included them in sacred literature. So why don't we talk about that for a bit? Why genealogies? I'm going to let you guys discuss it. I'm just going to sit back and learn and listen because I want to know um, what your thoughts are on the point of genealogies. I have a couple thoughts. I'll, I'll let you go first. Okay. Well, I think part of the reason that genealogies were included um, is that um, as these works were being compiled, part of the push was to preserve their culture, preserve their heritage, preserve and find again, their identity in a foreign culture. Um, and so having these um, like concrete people that they could point back to, I think there's an identity piece to that, being able to say, this is, this is who we come from, this is who we are. Um, I think, within the narrative, there's also um, a function of connecting different parts of the text together. Um, so we can see this in um, Genesis four and five, there's a genealogy that connects the sections between um, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and then on to Noah. And it shows how Noah relates to these people from earlier. Um, so that helps us kind of track with the story and understand how these people are connected um, over long spans of time. Um, I think something so it allows else us. It allows. Does it allow us to advance in the story? Is that what you're saying? Kind of, yeah. Like we have yeah. this. Uh, without it, there would just be this huge gap of time. It's like, how do we get here, and who's Noah? Right. And okay. approximately how much time has maybe elapsed here? Mm, right. Um, and it also kind of sometimes it's almost like a, a recap, like when you're watching a show on Netflix and, you know, the first thing that pops up is last season and it plays through all of the things that happened. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Um, when you read my daughter, the text, my daughter you had to think like my, two years back, my daughter watches The Flash. She loves The Flash. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I jump in every once in a while, like every yeah. you know, third episode. So she wants me to make sure that I watch the right the, what happened in the last season, last episode. So I'm caught up. Right. Otherwise, you're going to be lost. I'm lost. And if, you're, <laughs> if you're watching The Witcher, you'll be totally lost anyways, because it was so long ago. <laughs> yeah. But like we see in Jesus's, Jesus's genealogy. Um, oh, that's our calls back to all of these names that we recognize from the old testament um and it kind of reminds us oh yeah this guy this guy this is how right. everybody connects together um 
And so it brings all of those past stories back to the front of our mind. Mm. That's really interesting because I, I didn't connect all those dots. I haven't connected all those dots. I just assumed, I mean, there's assumptions and we just assume that they're important um, and they're important to them, but you kind of put it together of why they could be important. Like they can serve a narrative function. Right. Right. Okay. Jake, you have any thoughts on genealogies? What's the point? <laughs> a few things. Um, like we all have stories about people that we may or may not be related to. Right. And so like oh, yes. half of the United States are related to Jesse James. That's a really common one to be related to. And I don't know why, but um because he's cool look, i don't know <laughs> yeah i don't know if you look back in the text um you see someone that maybe you were referenced to maybe have been descended from hmm. i think you can more easily find the humanity in the text um, the the retelling of names especially especially the Levitical names. I'm not so sure why Reuben is put in there. Um, and it could be, go ahead, Trey. Um, it was, um, those are the three oldest sons. So it started in order of Jacob's sons. Yeah. Reuben's the oldest, Simeon's second, Levi's third. And it just wasn't important to talk it's about. Like a, it's like Levi. a courtesy inclusion. The Here's other the nine oldest. were not important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, the youngest yeah. usually isn't, yeah. And so you, especially the Levites, they would be the ones unrolling the scroll and they would mm -hmm. name off the people that they had direct descendants from, or they're they directly descended from. And so in order to be a high priest, you had to prove your lineage back to Aaron, right? Mm -hmm. All the way through. And so, especially at this time when the retelling of the scroll happens, we just read Nehemiah in our, our men's group and the high priest, Elisha, unrolls the scroll, which is a, it's, that's also symbolism itself of recreation, that, that creation is happening again when the scroll is unrolled. Then Jeremiah talks about the rolling up of scroll being the destruction of creation. So whenever the Torah is read, it's an image of creation. And so the Moses and Aaron they'd be direct descendants or the, the priests would be direct descendants from them specifically. And if you read the, the, the genealogy carefully, you notice that Moses's dad was his aunt's nephew. I'm sorry, married his aunt. So it's nephew, cousin, daddy, aunt, mommy. <laughs> and so... In or something itself, like that. <laughs> and then in itself, it has a, this is how pure of a Levite we are. We came from two Levites from the right. same household, the same family. That's the story of, of that. But I really think it's important that, that they were find themselves in it, but also when the scroll was being unwound and read, it gives authority, it gives purpose, it gives position doesn't necessarily, I mean, do you respect the position of the person? And so you may not have respected the person at the time, but you could respect that right. this was the, from descendant of Aaron himself. And this just gives more credence to the notion that this was written in a time frame that we've already talked about in exile, where... It's it's hard and to you, reference your grandchildren when you write it yeah, yourself or your great-grandchildren. Yeah, exactly. So, so in other episodes, we talked about like when this was written, why it was written in the time frame it was written and such. So, so this just gives genealogy just shows us that, and this genealogy specifically shows us that uh, this was more than likely written at around the time of exile. And and referring back to these people and filling in the gaps of time and such and, and giving, 
giving authority, establishing Aaron as a, a priest um, and coming from the priestly line. That was, that was an important uh, notion, but also Shrey, you've done a lot of work with this, with identity. That's kind of your common theme is identity. And I think genealogy does give us a little bit of identity. You know, I'm mm-hmm. part Germ- German, I'm part British, you know, and like, this is where my lines go and I'm a son of the revolution, you know, my genealogy. So it's, you know, that's a, a thing. Um, it has, has no effect on me. It's not changed my life whatsoever, but it's an interesting topic, uh, interesting connection and identity. And so you brought that to my attention several weeks ago, that this is a story of identity um, and who is God and who are we and how we fit in this story. So, well, that's awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, that kind of explanation about genealogy, because we see genealogy in numbers, we see in Genesis, we see it here, we see it in the New Testament. And what's funny is a lot of pastors, when they preach, you know, we just kind of skim over the genealogy or we won't even talk about it, you know, because it's just not, quote, relevant, applicable for the moment. So, so that definitely gives us some some breadth and, and depth to that subject. All right. So another blaring issue with Exodus 6, 2 to 7, 13 is this story is a repeat. And we need to talk about that repeat. And it's, it's an important um it's an important topic to discuss because, okay, is this just an inclusion? Is this just an editorial error? Is this a, is this supposed to be there? Is this, what is this? And why is it repetitive? What's the purpose of repeating in literature and narrative? So take it away. What, what do you think? Give me some feedback on why is this repetitive? I think, again, it points to the, um, the likelihood that there were more than one authors or contributors to this work. Um, in the same way we see two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, we see two accounts of Moses' call. Mm. So it's a massive repetition of Moses' call. Yes. Massive, yeah, but it, it points to different things. And so what does it point to? Um, it talks about, um, I will be your God and you'll be my people. Mm-hmm. That is a repetition. If, so if you read it in continuity of Genesis, that will be the major, probably fourth time that you've heard that. Um, and all of them have to do it's that that's covenantal language. And so um, God is cutting a covenant at that point with with Moses, and so it starts out with covenant. And so if we if we start the story of Exodus again at six, and say okay, that's the first the first six or five chapters that was one author or multiple that was put together, and now we have another telling of the same the same story that's in a different way. That makes sense to why it starts with with covenant. And then in the, the first, uh, when, when Moses can't speak to the Israelites, um, the, the words there is not, I'm, I'm slow of speech, but it's, I have an uncircumcised mouth. And so it, it gives the, like, the credence of he's not, he's not a very good Jew to the Jewish people or the Hebrew people. Right. And that combined with the um, genealogy of the Levites really points to uh, an author that was probably part of the priesthood. Correct. And, yeah. And honestly, it's like repetition helps us understand more. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, consistent mm-hmm. messaging. <laughs> consistent, congruous yes. messaging. Although it's right. not very congruous, but we're good. Yeah. Well, it, there is a, there is a point to make that there's a massive disappointment that, that Moses thought that Pharaoh, this whole scene would be one and done that he receives this call from the burning tree 
He goes to the elders, gets the affirmation, go. And then he goes, Pharaoh says, no. And that wasn't supposed to happen. So even in the, the feeling of reading that narrative, you get to the end of that and you go, okay, if this was the first time hearing that, but then it enters into this weird cacophony of like the chapter before this is, you know, we got, we got foreskin being cut off and touching genitals and all this, like the Bible gets really weird right before this. And if this is a compilation of story and there's multiple tribal traditions that are coming together, it would be very likely that this retelling was inserted here, not to say that it wasn't supposed to be there or it was made up. It's not. It's just another piece of narrative to affirm the direction we're going is we've heard all of this, like, okay, we're going to include all these because as Sharia has said that. Uh, to allow all voices to continue, to allow all voices to be included in the discussion. And now we just need to reaffirm why, why are we here? We're already in chapter six. And of course, there's no chapter breaks, but you know what I mean? We're already at chapter six of this story. And I'm confused. Like, why did we just talk about all that? And Pharaoh said, no. And now we're here affirming the call again. So it makes a, it's like a it's like a directional uh, placeholder. But that brings up a huge point, a cultural point, allowing all voices to be heard, allowing all sides of this story to be expressed. In our culture right now, we're having a huge problem with that. We're having a huge problem with voices and sides of the fence and separation and fragmentation of uh, the, the opinion of people. And we really are having a hard time allowing voices just to be like heard and just because you're a human being be respected because you might not be saying something respectable and you might be completely off base. Uh, yet that voice is coming from somewhere that we need to find understanding. We need to find, and I think that, I think that the uh, Israelite people did a good job of allowing voices, even if it described their own shame, even it described their own failure and their own um, failure to God. And this, this just shows that they allowed more voices into the conversation, even if it made them look bad. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I mean, I, I brought up a huge cultural problem that can't be solved in, you know, this discussion today, but, but we could talk about it just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a challenge. Um, there are voices that I don't particularly want to be heard. Um, right. So like that's, <laughs> yeah. It's also a big ask of humility for me um, mm -hmm. to think that I have the, the right or the authority to silence other people, however misguided I might think they are. Yeah. It's true. I mean, a thousand years from now, people are going to read back on the history of the United Corona. States and yeah, the coronavirus, COVID-19. And they're going to look back on this time and they're going to go, what? You know, that these, the voices that, uh, you know, voices that are trying to silence other voices that are trying to silence that, that never turns out well in history. It never turns out well. So a thousand years from now, people are going to look back on this history and go, wow, what a failure. Like this was like the great American the great Protestant experiment. We won't do that again. <laughs> you know. So any other thoughts, Jake, on that? I think Dre was was right. Do we want all voices heard? Like we're not sure if this is all voices or not, right? Right. True. That's true. A good, a good guess of like, okay, this makes the most sense. And I'm gonna put this together. Or even I'm going to take the three first clans because they're the largest ones and I'm going to compile their histories together because I can. 
Um, right, right. And that, and that actually is, is how we do history now. We take, mm-hmm. we take the victors and we write the history. And so even though that might be totally different than what we are used to, or even like we frame history in a way where, especially in the Western culture, where there's very limited shame and so, or even guilt, if I could say, right. if we're going to talk about like even white guilt, white fr- fragility, um, the fearfulness of being the dominant culture that controls information. Um, you know, it's the, we, we had a, uh, we had a friend share a, what happens to your mind when it's deconstructed and the, the point that it made was a very historical piece of George Washington's teeth. Mm. Like there's lots of retellings of what his teeth were. Mm. There's some answers more true than others, but we choose right. which way we're going to remember them. And that's... And as a kid, we learned George Washington's teeth were made out of wood. Not slaves' teeth that he right. liked. So that's... Yeah that's the difference in history. And so there are movements of called people's history where um, they take fragments of what they know from uh, the marginalized and they put them together into a historical format. Um, At this time, Israel, the Hebrew nation was a marginalized people group. And so Mm. whenever you're reading the history of Israel, um, look at it from the tertiary it's when it's when it starts to become powerful, especially in like Kings and Chronicles, mm-hmm. where the, the history narrative changes to more of glory than of submission and and humility. Well, thinking about like the three largest tribes and taking their stories and pulling them together for the book of Exodus. Um, that's a really good point because they probably, if they had power struggles or, you know, power plays between one another, you know, the dominant stories would then, uh, you know, versions would come together. But our, our, the history of the world, if you just look at the history of the world, uh, this is the, the removal of voices and the victory of the winners the winners write history um, in our modern culture. And we try to remove shame. And, and when we try to remove shame, we're altering the, I guess, the counter history or you're altering the counter victory where if you have victory, you have to have loss and you know, you can't always be victorious. You know, that's not even a real story. I've always been victorious. I've never made a mistake and I've never done anything shameful. Well, that's lame. We know that that's not true. And so if I told my life story that way, that I'm always victorious, people would look at me like I'm a, you know, a tool, I'm a poser, you know, at that point, I'm a fake story. And the inclusion of shame in ancient literature is actually a, a, an, a, uh, a proof that the story is a legitimate story or a narrative that somebody is writing for a purpose and inspired word from God. Um, I think about the Holocaust and when Amanda and I were over in Germany uh, and there's, there's groups of people within that culture that want to remove within the confines of their country. I'm not talking about on the world stage. I know that there's people that want to remove the Holocaust from our history. Yet within the borders of the country in which it emerged, there are people that want to remove the statues and the, and the buildings and the, uh, the stumbling stones are called these brass stones where if a Jewish person was removed from the home, Uh, and put into concentration camps, then they died and were murdered, they would write on a brass 
cobblestone and that was called the stumbling stone they would put it in the ground at the house in which they were removed they wrote the date in which they were born and died and then uh, underneath what prison they were murdered in and it says on the stumbling stone they were murdered at Dachau they were murdered at Auschwitz it says that on the there are people that want to remove all of that history because it's shameful it is that is a horrific history um to try to wipe out basically a a race of people that like you know it's like well what you know what did they do like to you know just but they didn't like do anything to deserve such treatment and that like makes it even more shameful you just killed people for no reason you know so i think that the removal of history has been has been you know all a part of our western modern modern not necessarily western but modern culture but in the ancient in the ancient culture, shame was an inclusion. So you had shit. So they started out as slaves. They started out as like these people that were underneath power. They would, they started out as like, like in indentured. They started out like, you know, killed and raped and, you know, all the things that came along with Egyptian slavery. So that just brings a depth and breadth to this narrative um, that is, that shows something very important that I want to just land on God redeeming such a people that are shamed, slaved, you know, murdered, raped, imprisoned in this country, um, in this area that, that God redeeming those people, he didn't redeem Egyptian people. He redeemed the Israelite people. So he didn't redeem the victory people, victors. He redeemed the slave. That makes Yahweh an incomparable God. That makes Yahweh incomparable to, to the other gods that were like, in, you know, like my God's more important than your God and my God's better than your God, you know? So, so it makes God um, incomparable. To make one more point, Kevin, to what you're saying. Yeah. Um, if we look at the text being written in exile, yeah. only three tribes made up the second exile. So you had the first exile in 722, oh, yeah. destroyed um, mm -hmm. nine of the tribes, and then the Levites were set apart. So there's really 13 different tribes, right, that were right. there. Right. Um, and then look the Levites would float. They had no area. They just were the, they were sojourners i guess we would call them um mm -hmm. and then so going into the babylonian exile at 526 there was only three tribes judah benjamin and levite and so right. it's interesting to me though that benjamin and judah are not listed in the genealogies however yeah they would not be the tribes present during the writing of Exodus. Right. So you're saying that the amount of tribes had reduced to possibly that we only had a handful of versions. Well, you had the first, the first exile, which is 722 that was taken by the Syrians. Right. And all of those tribes are pretty much wiped clean, intermarried and, mm -hmm. and left. And right. then, you have Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites going to Babylon and Artaxerxes then allowing them back during the reign of Nehemiah and Ezra. Thank you. I wanted to just bring up one small little, you know, commercial break. Uh, that's not off topic, but on topic. If you think about this being a narrative, this being a story. And people have criticized even my words of saying that there's no historical evidence that the Israelite people were in Egypt. That was really hard for people to stomach. Folks, it was hard for me to stomach. So I, I think that it's just hard to stomach 
when you believe something for so long and then all of a sudden there's a nuance change or there's something different um, that you have to absorb, you have to learn, you have to grow through that and figure out, well, okay, do I even have a faith anymore? What is my faith built on? Why is this story then even included? You know, and why does it carry all the way through the Psalms and into the New Testament? You see in Matthew 2 that it's referred to as Exodus and my son will come out of Egypt right and so this whole idea of redemption is always tied back to this this idea this story and my friend martin actually sent me a video he's a pastor in oregon and uh, I, I really idaho, have I think, right? appreciated what he's in idaho right what what did i say oregon oh i'm sorry i live in oregon he's from idaho yeah so he's an Idaho pastor, and he sent me this video uh, that Jordan Peterson made. And Jordan Peterson is criticized at many, many levels. And I do not agree with many, many things that Jordan Peterson believes, such things as global warming and his position on that I don't agree with. Um, the demasculation, emasculation of co culture don't agree with. There's a lot of things that he says that I don't agree with. There's a lot of things that he says that I do agree with because he's a behavioral psychologist and he sorts through and thinks deeply about behavioral psychology. So he's a Christian with what's called a Christian existentialist. He kind of like lives up here in the clouds and he like looks down in on our Christianity and has lots of opinions, right? And, and so that's good. And that's like, go away. You know, you just kind of like, gosh, you're talking too loud because he talks a lot and he's talked all over the world. And sometimes he talks too much and that's okay. You know, I mean, I'm not judging him by any means. He's I'm sure a good person and means well in everything that he does. And then he says things that are like so profound and so amazing. You just hang on to them. So he produced this video and, and, uh, or his people, cause he's, you know, God, you know, he's not like us people. that do, he, they don't, he doesn't do podcasts in his living room with his own equipment that he pieced together on a shoestring budget. So he's more famous than that and probably has lots of people around him producing and creating. So he was talking about the narrative and how you have the objective world which is like boots on the ground, you know, work every day, wake up at six, bed by 10, kids are running around and arguing, they have to go to school. You know, that's the objective world, right? I have to pay my electric bill to have lights, right? And I have to go to work. And I have to, I have to, I have to like, make, you know, like, make a priority list and actually fulfill duties at home and share those with Amanda and come alongside people and have tangible relationships that we do things together that produce a product or an outcome. And then you have the narrative world. And the narrative world is the story. It could be like the love story that's happening around us, or the narrative could be the this spiritual story that's happening. And when he said that in one of his podcasts, he said the objective world and the narrative world touch in Christ. And that's the spiritual world. And I thought that was so profound that the story, if I could relate this back to Exodus, is when we find ourselves, because we can identify with maybe even the slave, we can identify with the hero, we can identify with being you know, treated poorly, we can identify with the follower, we can identify with the pharaoh, we can identify with the soldier, we can might even be able to identify with the murderer, maybe we've had those feelings. Uh, the afraid speaker, I don't know if you've ever been afraid to speak, but we can you know, identify with that person, the runaway, Maybe even the baby in the basket. We can identify with the baby in the basket, that abandonment, that 
goodness, you know, like, or maybe the salvation of, maybe the salvation of that. So the objective world and the narrative world, if you think about Exodus as the narrative world that we can identify with, we identify with this story. We identify with, with this narrative that God is going to save. And when my objective world comes together with that narrative world, that's when I encounter God. That's when I encounter, and especially in the book of Exodus, that's when I encounter Christ. I can see that God saves these people, is going to save these people, is promising to save these people. And I can see that in myself, that even though I have to go to work every day and I'm trying to raise two kids and I'm trying to do the best that I can, and they do fall apart and they run around and say really mean things to one another sometimes. And life gets a little stressful and daddy yells and, and, and it's difficult, right? Needs therapy. Needs, and then I end up in therapy, right? And my kids are in counseling and I'm sitting there in, you know, family counseling. I know that God promises that he's going to save me. He's going to take care of me. He's going to provide for me. He's going to give to me just like the story. Of I just want to make, bring that out. Cause I think that that's a huge, huge topic that we don't talk about enough because, because this history of the story is the objective world. And if we're always trying to make the narrative an objective idea, we've lost the spiritual connection. We've lost the spirit behind the narrative. We lost the, the Christ that is within the beauty of this literature of this story that's lasted for literally generation upon generation upon generation over and over and over again. Okay. Let's go to our last topic. I just want to say that as a commercial break and it was too long for a commercial break, but there you go. Do you want to just camp on that for a bit and do the next one next week? Or do you want to, you know, I think we should just cover it because we got to move forward. We've got eight minutes. I think we can do it in eight minutes. I want to spend like 15 on it, but maybe we'll spend nine. Let's have this be your application. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. That's okay. All right. In the end of, or the kind of chapter seven, seven, one through 13, although there's no chapter breaks, um, but we'll just reference it. That portion of the story, we see a transformation of Moses, don't we? Yes. A big one, yes. A big one. So what is the transformation that we see? Like, let's just popcorn that for a minute. Confidence. Yeah. Can more say about that or just confidence? No, I was I was making I said popcorn. To popcorn. Okay. <laughs> um, purpose and security. I think he actually followed God's command at this point. Followership. Can we say that word? Followership. Yeah. From probably trust. From real, yeah, trust. From reluctant yeah. to resilient. Mm-hmm. are resolved can we say from loser to leader <laughs> i don't think you have a loser status <laughs> there's lots in there there is we'll lots talk about there. we'll talk about lots more to come <laughs> so yeah because he just keeps not doing the right thing, right? up. yeah um so we see a great transformation in Moses. And I think that that directly can be applied to our lives. And last week, I just mentioned a few things like, like, for example, we need to, uh, you know, when we enter into a challenge, we need to admit some things and we need to confess some things. And that confession is, do I really want to change? And I think that that's the first step to any kind of recovery or addiction program or anything like that is like admitting that I actually have a problem. So, so this idea of the question, honestly, do I want to change? If we're going to transform from, let's just say loser to leader, if we're going to transform from, you know, just not following God to following God and becoming a leader, uh, we have to kind of confess, do I want to change and answering that question, honestly, I think that applies to the church 
And I want to spend the rest of our time right there. Just the on that first that I, question. Just on that first question. I just feel a move in my spirit to ask that over and over again. When I look at Moses and the transformation that he's now following God and he's going to, I mean, we got bugs and blood and brains. I mean, we got some stuff coming up that's pretty ugly. And I don't know where I got brains. Yeah, brains, bugs and blood, right? Coming up and- Boils and bugs, boils and what boils blood. There you and go. And Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yes, we got all that coming up. And in order to go through that, I think somebody actually has to have a sense of God confidence. Hey, God, are you going to come through? Um, you know, are you actually going to split the water because these people are right behind me? You know, chasing my tail. Uh, so I, I think that. I think that he had to enter into that with a lot of leadership and a lot of confidence. So there's this huge transformation. So he had to ask that question. Do I want that? Do I really want to change? Let's relate that to the church today. Do we really want to change? I do. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a big we. Um, yeah. It's hard to speak for all it's of us. A, it's the, it's the universal. We, I know. Will we, um, historically the church has never accepted change well yeah especially since taking a position of power right mm-hmm. i think that's when we stopped being able to change so quickly because we had we had bills to pay and yeah walter Brueggemann talks a lot about losing the prophetic voice when you're tied down with building campaigns and maintenance and salaries and, and, Mm -hmm. and you start to have to speak what people, what your donors want you to say rather than what God is calling you to say. I think you, when we read the last part of Exodus, it's Moses is saying what God wants him to say, not protecting Moses' self anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think also in that move to resilience, there's less reactivity. And yeah. I think that's something that we, we struggle with too when it comes to change. I think that's a human problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kelly says, I think we are too afraid to change. What we do is what we've always done. Yeah. It feels safe. Yeah. I think specifically the churches that are growing right now are ones that are, are it's total trend. Uh, it's not, it's not conversion growth. It is transfer growth. Mm-hmm. And right now in our history, the time where you see politic creating church growth more than it ever has. Right. And so we have a, a good position in time to be able to, to really change and hone in on, are we focused on changing people's lives or are we going someplace that we feel comfortable well i I think think we go ahead shreya um i was just thinking about how how we function as a church and a community as well um is church that hour on sunday morning where we're singing and listening to a message or is church the stuff during the week when we're you know, bringing people meals or driving them to the hospital or visiting them in the hospital or picking up their kids when they aren't able to do it or, you know, all of those things. Yeah. Which one is church? Mm-hmm. Yes. I really, I really think that the church needs to be, uh, as this is a recreation story, the book of Exodus, and we're right here at this crucible moment that, 
Moses has reinvented himself. So if you think about the Moses a couple chapters ago, and you think about this Moses, it's about ready to go through bugs, boils, and blood, right? He's about ready to go through this. He has definitely reinvented himself. And I think that the church, as we face, as we have faced pandemic, as we have the plague, as we have faced shutdowns and global crisis and now global economy crisis um, that, you know, and inflation is probably the least of our concerns and it's the most on people's minds, uh, the crises that are, that are, you know, generating on the global stage. You think about uh, really what is, what is going on uh, and how we need to position ourselves as the church, but not just position ourselves, position with action. And Shuri and I were talking weeks and weeks ago about the juice, you know, what we get out of church and do we really get the juice out of church, you know, singing songs and listening to messages and stuff. And I think that there is a, there's a very good case that we need to gather and gathering is good and worship is good. Yet the juice comes 24-7, where the Spirit is working in me, positioning me to act, and coming alongside, uh, like Pastor Bruce, coming alongside with Home PDX and coming alongside that. And really, that's where I've been going down to Home PDX a lot lately. And it just, I get a lot, can I just say, I get a lot of juice from that. You know, when I, when I, I, I feel encouraged, I feel like this is the gospel. This is like, it's, it's playing out here. Um, but I also, I also uh, experienced that in, in other times where in these conversations of helping somebody deconstruct, reconstruct their face, faith, face, faith. <laughs> I'm not a reconstruction surgeon, um, but recon- deconstruction, reconstruction of their faith. I get a lot of like encouragement out of that. I was just telling pastor Jake here today. I'm like this friend of ours, I've watched him transform over a period of time. And it's just been really encouraging to me to see, you know, that play out in his life. Uh, But I think that the church needs to just learn how to be less of one thing and more of another and less about building a fortress around them less about building a wall around them so that the, you know, the culture can't get inside. Uh, We need to break down those walls, become an, an open and welcoming community, but that happens outside. That happens, you know, beyond these walls or this, building or this house or or whatever i just think it's time for the church to reinvent itself and recreate itself because if we don't the statistics are there i'm just going to give them really quick i know it's 933 uh between like if you start reading about statistics of church growth between like 1910 1900 let's say all the way to 1970 i think the church dropped like five percent and then from 1970 all the way to 2001, that's when I first got into ministry. I was like a youth leader. I was, you know, emerging in ministry. And there was a big crisis because from 1910 or 1900 to like 2001, we saw like, you know, another 5%. And so I was like, wow. But then from 2001 to today, it is exponential loss. Now I know that there's statistical implications behind that with population growth and all that, but that just shows me that we're not reaching even, you know, the population growth. So we've dropped probably even farther um, statistically, but I just look at the statistical drop and I go, wow, there's, you know, friends of, of mine, you know, they've written books about, you know, not, like not even finding a place in church anymore, a home, a safety place, a place that to confess their sins, a place to find counseling and help. And they just don't find it there anymore. They find like a presentation. Um, They find something to not participate in. They're not finding real help within, within our churches. And, uh, 
and then people just go, well, I just don't want this anymore. I can find, I can find the juice that I need and want somewhere else. And they're going other places, not other churches, just other places. And they find that and, you know, wherever they find that. But anyway, I think this change, the transformation that the church, which we can directly relate, relate to the book of Moses uh, or book of Exodus and Moses and his transformation. I think we need to pay attention and how do we change that's coming up. So we're going to get into plagues and I'm excited to talk about plagues. So it begins, right? Watch this. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> All right. We've talked enough. Thanks both of you for participating tonight and giving some excellent thoughts. I really appreciate the things about genealogy and the, and the repetitive story. That was awesome. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Have a wonderful, Thanks. wonderful evening and Good rest night. of your week.